Hey everyone, Arjun here. Welcome back to Leftover and to part two of our episode about Afghanistan featuring Nate Bethea. As mentioned in the previous episode, we do highly recommend that you listen to part one before you listen to this because it picks up exactly where we left off the last one. We start off with the post-Soviet period, which had the civil war with the Mujahideen and the Taliban. And subsequently, we move on to the US invasion uh, and occupation of Afghanistan much of which includes Nate's own stories from his time on the ground there. Like I said, an enormous thanks again to Nate for his contributions and a massive thanks to, to all of you for listening. We hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. said you didn't you didn't know a ton about the mujahideen period i think the thing that i would say is the following obviously osama bin laden and the saudis in general did a lot to promote recruitment of arab jihadis to fight the russians in afghanistan they were not particularly welcomed or well received by afghans yeah because they were from a different culture they spoke a different language and like their behavior was very different but this was considered as i understand it was sort of like there was the tacit support of a lot of arab governments because this basically was a valve that allowed them to expel, you know, lots and lots of young men who would otherwise be involved in politics to go fight in Afghanistan. And the ones who got came home were oftentimes imprisoned. So in the Saudis case, bin Laden was heavily involved fighting the Russians and then stayed in Afghanistan. But then uh, I believe left in the early 90s, went to Sudan, um, but was eventually expelled from Sudan because of Al Qaeda doing shit that got the Sudanese government in trouble. I believe it was Omar Bashir was the 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 leader of, of Sudan, the president of Sudan. Yeah. And they were trying to bomb Hosni Mubarak crossing the border from Sudan with cars that had Sudanese diplomatic plates. And I don't think Bashir knew about it. Right. So basically at a point they were like, all right, you guys need to get the fuck out of Sudan or we're going to arrest all of you and turn you over to the Americans. And so they went to Afghanistan. Right. And, um, and that brings us to... 1998, when they tried to blow up a bunch of airliners uh, on flights across the Pacific, originating out of Indonesia, but that plot was was foiled. When was the initial uh, attempt at the, uh, at the attack on the World Trade Center? It's that like was 1993. 93, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, they 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 parked a truck bomb in the basement, the parking garage of the World Trade Center, and detonated it. Um, but that, uh, I, you know, what's crazy is that, like, yeah, I. I have not read up enough on the subject to know how tied in Ramzi Youssef was with Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. I really don't know. But Well, he was the he was the nephew of Khalid Sheikh, who was the guy who really Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, yes, mind. yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Which is why when obviously Osama bin Laden became the big uh, central figure after 9/11, but in reality, it was yeah, it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and yeah. uh, a, a big part of that is there wasn't the narrative of going to find this guy, uh, hunting him down because I mean his nephew was already in U.S. prison at the time. Yeah. You couldn't sell it. It wasn't quite as sexy as going to find sure. uh, Bin Laden. And 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 many people online have probably seen uh, people posting the the article that was like the puff piece about Osama Bin Laden about like you know anti-Soviet holy warrior brings his country on <laughs> oh, the road the to peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, so in 1998, there were nearly simultaneous bombings at the U.S. embassies in. Uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and yeah. Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They killed hundreds of people, and um, you know this was very quickly determined to be the work of Al Qaeda. And um, in order to target them, that's why the U.S. Cl- or at least claiming to target them, the U.S. Uh, fired cruise missiles into we talked about earlier Sudan and Afghanistan. Um, and there, the initial development of unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, carrying Hellfire missiles, was actually put in place so the U.S. under Clinton could hopefully determine a way to kill Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan without sending troops there. So like the reason drones, armed drones exist was they were developed trying to kill bin Laden. Right. Because they knew he had a compound in Kandahar 
um, and they had these camps in eastern Afghanistan. In um, I don't know if Tora Bora is where they were. I, I think they were in Jalalabad in Ningarhar province, but Tora Bora is in uh, like the Paktia border area. Um, and uh, so the U.S. had their eye on bin Laden for forever. Um, and, you know, fatefully in 2001, August 2001, there was a presidential uh, briefing. The headline of it was, you know, bin Laden determined to strike inside U.S. And... Um, yeah. That's what wound up happening, as we discussed earlier. And uh, bin Laden didn't take credit for the attack till a while after. The Taliban yeah, used the right, fact yeah. that he didn't take claim it immediately to basically be like, "Well, that wasn't him. It's not our fault." <laughs> um, but uh, but by that point, obviously, it was a foregone conclusion um, that the U.S. was going to get bin Laden and by doing so invade Afghanistan. And then that mission very quickly shifted to. Well, actually, we're going to um, establish a democratic Afghanistan with liberal democracy, nation and building, enshrine women, and do nation building, enshrine <laughs> women's rights. Of their hijackers, um, Khalid Al Midar, he was he was very closely surveilled by the CIA. So in two thousand, he went to a high profile Al Qaeda meeting in Kuala Lumpur. This was yeah, he used uh, the CIA were uh, surveilling his credit card at the time. It was all, you know, this was revealed. It was very, the CIA were quite upfront about it. But for some reason, uh, he applied for a visa in the US and the FBI uh, just uh, didn't uh, didn't receive this intelligence. Yeah. There was this weird internecine war between the CIA and the FBI. <laughs> yeah, and uh, obviously the uh, of the pilots, uh, it took the, the pilots of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, Marwan El Shehi, and Ziajara. Uh, they were all training in Florida of the US. Mm-hmm. Um, it all started with an email from Mohammed Atta who said, Dear Sir, we are a small group of young men from different Arab countries. Now we are living in Germany since a while for study purposes. Yeah, because, you know, they were all, they're part of the Hamburg cell. Yeah. Uh, we would like to start training for a career of airline professional pilots. <laughs> and the, from this one sort of spammy wow. sounding email to a flight school in Florida, wow. they were let in, they all got visas. Mm-hmm. And um, So yeah, I think that's something that's something that uh, has always been kind of a thorn in my side about this stuff is how there's this very facile explanation put forth in u.s you know politics media etc they're like well we're in afghanistan to get the guys who did 9-11 it's like well if you want to get the guys who did 9-11 i think you need to invade saudi, saudi arabia, arabia. <laughs> yeah because, hamburg because yeah. these guys these guys planned the attack in hamburg i believe of the 19 one of them had ever been in afghanistan i think and i don't think it was in he, he may have been in an al-qaeda camp but he also very well may have been there during the the soviet uh occupation most the hijackers were primarily Saudi. There were a couple of, I believe, a couple of Egyptians. Zacharias Massawi was French Moroccan, but he wasn't on the yeah. planes. He missed the flight. Um, so the connection was there in the in the sense that that you know Bin Laden was in Afghanistan. But as you said, Rory, like the um, the Hamburg cell were the ones who did this. Like this was yeah, this was this huge failure on the part of you know intelligence to cap to, to catch this before it happened and i think to me the thing is it was very easy to accept like well afghanistan had these camps so we have to go and break this up and make sure it never happens again but what that actually meant in practice was um you know a foreign military occupying a country and yeah. subjecting it to military rules military occupation you know just exactly. like so my my co-host for my show what a hell of a way to die was a reservist in the army and he was deployed as a public affairs guy like a photographer journalist for the military to afghanistan in 2000 he was in in bagram and i think he spent a little bit of time in kandahar airfield and he said they would drive around in open top humvees and it was very not scary at all it was like mostly you know they'd go to the bazaar with an interpreter like they carry guns but it wasn't particularly like threatening um it was actually very kind of sedate like most people who got hurt from his unit were hurt in like vehicle accidents mm-hmm. whereas by the time that i got there in 2009 that was not the case and the reason why that was is that having a foreign military presence gave the taliban the ability to engender themselves to you know engender respect and um kind of redeem themselves yeah, yeah. in the eyes of I mean, people because the, the u.s they, surely became the the taliban's greatest recruitment tool 
Right. 100%. Well, 100% because during in starting in October 01, they were bombing what they believe were Taliban targets, but they were killing civilians. Yeah. Um, you know, military incident incidents happened where both like legitimate war crimes, people just killing people because they could, mm-hmm. but also stuff like people getting shot at checkpoints, uh people getting shot, you know, because they got too close to a perimeter at night or something like that. Uh bombs being dropped on civilian houses by mistake, vehicles being run off the road, kids getting run over by military vehicles when they're out playing, you know, uh f- getting in in firefights with insurgents and calling an indirect fire, firing mortars or calling in airstrikes, those striking civilian targets, the preponderance of drones hitting Al-Qaeda targets. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you think about the fact that, like you said, the border is very porous in a lot of these areas, like the sort of tribal affiliations are such that people are going to have family on the other side of the border. And so like, you know, a family in the Burmel Valley in Paktika province might have family in North Waziristan in, um, you know, Miramshah or places like that. And if they, you know, People were Mirashaw was just like it was like a, like a fleet of lawnmowers in the sky whenever the sun was out, fucking of drones just buzzing everywhere. So the t- the Taliban were able to recruit, I think, because they two things they went around and they sought out people and asked them what their grievances were, and they basically said that they were going to address them. And the biggest grievance was, I mean, I think the two big grievances were there's a foreign military occupation, and you know, beyond it being like a foreign army it's also like even people who are just sort of like at this point perhaps more accustomed to the fact that you know that troops have been in this country for so long it's also that it's just it causes detrimental stuff in their lives yeah everything from i'm late to get my wife to the doctor because i got stopped at a fucking checkpoint in the province I was in, one of the big complaints was the Polish army ran a checkpoint and a woman who was in labor died in a car because she couldn't get to a doctor in time. Uh, I can tell you stories about, you know, uh, you know, insurgents firing and getting in firefights and again getting killed by um, uh, close air support from a fixed wing aircraft that accidentally strafed a building while strafing these guys and, you know, killed a bunch of civilians and wounded a bunch of civilians. Most of them were kids. Mm. Like you can, you can give them condolence payments and you can give people, you know, come back and give them medical care and bring them to the facility and stuff and help them out. But like, they're still going to remember you as the guy who shot my house in the middle of the night and, you know, fucked up my kids and, you know, in the one case killed, killed my yeah. grandfather. The worst story I ever heard from Afghanistan was this was late 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was, this was, it came out in the news and it was later revealed in cables by WikiLeaks. You know, they did the, the Afghan war logs. So basically um, the U.S. were dropping humanitarian ration packets, mm-hmm. uh, which were yellow packets. But they were the same colour as cluster bombs, which come in yellow packets. So these, um, obviously you can imagine it, like these Afghan kids were running towards yeah. cluster bombs thinking it was it was aid, it was aid it was humanitarian yeah. rations. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's Jesus, the most harrowing thing I've ever read. I mean, I, um, I, I, I think the thing for me that was really the moment that... Uh, completely changed my mind i mean i had a bunch of them obviously like was 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 very turned off by the chauvinism and the callousness the just just call it what it is just racism towards afghans that i perceived from from american military and from like a lot of the american civilian people particularly the like civilian contractors who worked on bases and stuff it just felt like it felt like you were in like the deep south or something and they were talking about they were yeah. talking about black people. Yeah, like yeah, it was yeah. it was hideous the way they yeah. talked about it. The way they, they wanted to police the movements of everybody and like, you know, maybe maybe there was a security risk, but like if you're if you're so paranoid that you think that every Afghan is a potential terrorist, then you know, maybe you should assess why you're here in the first place and also yeah. like well, then maybe you don't want to have Afghans working on the base because if you were that paranoid, but you, you bring them on the base and you treat them like like animals but i think the thing that really got me was um we had an incident uh in the province that i was in and uh i told you i lived on an afghan compound and one morning i heard this loud explosion it wasn't the loudest i'd heard i mean we'd had bombs go off very close to us i had a bomb a car bomb go off uh maybe about 100 meters from me one time i was indoors and it blew out the windows and doors of the room i was in but i this morning this bomb went on and it was far enough away i was like that sounds bad but it wasn't close enough for us for like the shockwave to hit us or for like debris to fall on us or stuff. And um, well, it turned out it was a suicide bombing in the traffic circle in the center of town. And I had a small group of guys, so we threw our shit on and we went out to go see what we could do. But like the Afghan police were so freaked out, they were shooting at everyone who came close, including us. Mm. And so it was like, there was like five of us and I was just sort of like, well, there's no way that um, we're going to be able to get 
not get shot. Like we have an interpreter, but we don't have radios to talk with them. I don't want any of you guys to get hit. So I was just like, let's just stay put, call it up to battalion. They'll send people down, they'll secure it. And then, um, we'll be good. So we did that. We figured fine, whatever, you know, funny story. We got shot at, probably got shot at by friendly people, but it wasn't, it was close enough to scare us, but not close enough where we're like, we're, we think we're going to die. So like, whatever, you know, it, it's a day. Well, then they bring a civilian casualty to our gate and they're like, Hey, the, this, the hospital says they can't treat this guy. Can you help? And so me and my, one of my NCOs were like, sure, let's take a look. And we, uh, we are confronted by a kid, like a 14 year old kid with a huge bandage on the back of his head. He's unresponsive. Like his eyes are kind of moving. He's breathing, but he's, you know, very, very shallow breaths, uh, low pulse. And, um, we take the bandage off and like, I mean, not trying to gross people out, but like, imagine uh the back of his head had a geometry it should not have and you could see what looked like his brain exposed exposed and so i was like fuck shit this is really bad we need to get him to a trauma center so i call up and i tell him what i'm seeing i'm like you know here's what all the details um and i said i think i can see the lining of his brain and they were like well then he's he's expecting and i was like what do you mean? They're like, well, if you can see the lining of his brain, he's going to die. And I was like, yeah, but you have fucking beds in the trauma center. Like you, you've got four open beds. And they're like, yeah, but it doesn't meet what they call medro medical rules of engagement, which is like, well, we didn't cause it. It's not our fault. So we don't have to treat the civilian casualty. Like he's just a civilian casualty. He can go to the local hospital. And I was like, guys, you have fucking open hospital beds. We can get him to the gate in 10 minutes. Like you can save this fucking kid's life. What are you doing? And they're like, listen, it does not meet medro. We cannot admit him. So he died. And I just remember this. I just remember thinking like, man, what the fuck are we doing in this country? If we have these incredible hospitals, we have bed space and they won't treat any of these people. Like surely if the whole point is like, oh, we want to engender goodwill and make these people trust their government and support their government. Well, then like fixing a kid who got blown the fuck up because of the civil war that we're a part of, wouldn't that be part of it? Like, shouldn't that factor in? And it was like, nah, it's not our, not our responsibility. And I was just like, yeah. in that moment, I just felt, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Like, I just, this is, this is such a cruel joke. And like, don't, don't worry about my feelings. Like, fuck, who gives a fuck about me? It's more like, this is what Afghans are experiencing. And they have zero recourse mm-hmm. in any of this. This is just like what they're confined to. And numerous times while I was there, I heard bombs going off where people, families had by mistake driven, like, or they were driving insurgents had armed bombs thinking that it was a convoy coming and it was just a civilian car and they couldn't disarm them in time and blew up you know station wagons full of kids like that happened regularly enough that it was like a thing we could expect to see happen and i was just like that's if you're if you're from here and you live here like this is your life your life is constantly wondering if you're going to die at any moment because of the war going on around you yeah yeah i mean i i couldn't even imagine sort of what it's what it would have been like there at the time but that's the I thing, mean, like you're saying as well, you know, like, I mean, it's especially for the people for whom it's a reality and like, you know, I mean, uh, for you, you still had the option of, like you're saying, you know, to say that, like, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, I mean, I was, st- I was stuck there until yeah. the deployment was over yeah. and I, I was stuck in the army for the length of my contract. But like, I was going back to America and I could make the choice to get out of the army. And it's like, that's when you're living in Afghanistan, you have a passport that will get you into like maybe 20 countries most of them are so expensive to travel to it would take you two years salary to be able to afford plane tickets there a passport costs what an afghan in afghanistan a passport costs what the average afghan makes in a month you know you can you can maybe get across the border into pakistan where you'll be an illegal immigrant and be treated like shit by the pakistanis or same thing in iran you know you don't really have any recourse and i think seeing that desperation and how callously we treated them and how callously the government that we basically installed treated them because they were no better. Like you were left with this. I mean, I'll put it this way. What happened two weeks ago did not surprise me at all. I knew that day would come. We all did. It's more that I was surprised at how fast it happened. But I will say this, that I think that like, Everybody was just so exhausted. Mm-hmm. It was so fucking worn out from it. And it was so obvious the Taliban like, you know, had a deal and they were going to be back. And it was like either 
either negotiate it or you get to be like the last person to die in the civil war. And I think people were just fucking exhausted. Um, when I say people, I mean like the people in the Afghan military, the yeah, leadership, yeah, yeah, of course. you know, people out in the provinces and stuff like that. And there I mean, was, for, yeah, like the, the Afghan army or the Afghan police to like, I mean, what real motivation did they have to like stand and fight? Well, and they weren't getting paid. They weren't getting like their money was the, they, their they were out they, were being, they, like they were out of food rations and munitions yeah. as well at that they, point. They ran out of yeah. they ran out of ammo. They yeah, didn't exactly. have air support. They 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 weren't being paid. Like for years, their their salaries and like, had been getting and embezzled. And fucking um, Ghani just like took off with like millions of dollars and just fled yeah, the fucking 169 country. Yeah, million dollars in it's cash. Just like, he flew yeah, to yeah, yeah, and. Uh, Ashraf Ghani, who co-wrote a book called Fixing Failed States. <laughs> well, I mean, hilariously, um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Ashraf Ghani, Hamid Karzai, and um, Mullah Baradar are all from the same tribe. Right. And uh, Karzai has been sort of like negotiating this deal. And I think the thing that I would say about, I'm not a Taliban apologist at all. I mean, I, I don't want to like get into gory details, but like the stuff they did when we were there to like people they captured was so horrendous. Yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah. And some of those people were guys I worked with that yeah, got yeah. Uh, not Americans, but Afghans who got yeah. captured. So yeah. like, I don't have any sympathy for the Taliban. But what I will say is, um, um, I think that you are seeing some different form of of them because contrast what happened to Doctor Najibula when yeah. the Taliban took over versus what's happened to Karzai, who was the president who, you know, was in charge of it when the coalition was killing people and yeah, the Afghan yeah. military were killing people. And, you know, like it's been, it's just, I think people are so exhausted. And, uh, I think that, you know, the Taliban did do a couple of ceasefires. And in one case they did like a 48 hour ceasefire and they actually held to it. Mm-hmm. And there was this, all the Afghan reporters that I follow were just like, this is just, it's just like living in this dream state. Cause after the first 24 hours when like they realized yeah. they were actually sticking to it, they're like, wait, this is what this country would be like if we just didn't have to worry about random acts of violence every time we left our homes. Mm-hmm. Like this is this just unreal vision of like what things could be like. I think the thing about the Taliban is that they, they were very keen to give up bin Laden the whole time, weren't they? They just kept offering him to the U S Oh, they didn't really give a shit that much. I mean, they 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 did, but the thing about it is, is they once again, this was to me, it was like a question of not really knowing how stuff works in Afghanistan. Like they rejected it yeah. at first, but I think they were absolutely open to negotiations. It's just that, you know, there's a lot of. I can give you an example of this that when I I went on a mission one time where uh, special forces or rangers had um, done a breach into this compound and captured a guy. And um, they didn't kill anybody. And they, I mean, the weird thing with the U.S. military was that the Rangers, by and large, were very, very precise. They were like, you know, insanely violent, but like they didn't kill people yeah. arbitrarily, whereas the SEALs mm-hmm. absolutely did all the time. That was, you knew, you knew that if you were, you're like doing a handover, because I wasn't in a special forces unit, I was in a regular infantry unit. If you were doing a handover with, um, uh, with SEALs, that like they probably would have killed a bunch of civilians like this just was a thing they did and it was right. it was disgusting it was inc- unconscionable and everyone knew it and they always just made these fucking fictional stories about like oh we felt threatened we assessed a threat basically like american cops and they the, were just the, like you have to be basically right. like extra racist to be like a navy seal right well did you did you see you know it was a big scandal in australia recently yeah yeah the, I, I can't remember the documents that were released but it was brereton report yeah that was the Brereton report, that's it, yeah. And uh, this exposed the fact that there was this uh, procedure of blooding the yeah. troops. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, Blood, like they would do so like, that, uh, they'd kill people just basically as like a welcome to theater, welcome to combat thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you, you You went from, you know, being a boy to a man by killing some random Afghans. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, what I can tell you is uh, this was a thing that we noticed when we were there. And everyone I know who was in Afghanistan who wasn't just a complete fuckhead if they were in a position to like senior enough to know what was happening and not just like, Hey private point your gun that way kind of shit. They, um, they have a story of, you know, we had to do a handover with the seals and then all of the goodwill we might've built up in our area was lost because they just murdered people, you know, and then made up some bullshit story why they had to. And, um, and everyone all in their chain of command always, always covered them up. I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to be racist to be a Navy seal. I think it's more along the lines of, 
the Navy SEALs have a like gang culture that's even stronger than American cops mm. that like you just like and it's just it's to the point where I don't know if you heard this story but I think it was in Mali it was in West Africa there was a Navy SEAL who was stealing money that was being used supposed to be used for like emergency purchases and stuff he was embezzling it and a green beret that was part of the special ops group they were in green berets are army special forces not navy um was like he was like what the fuck man and like he basically said he was going to report it so the seal just murdered him and uh like just i I remember remember correctly he he did he he face any consequences uh he did, but it took a while for him to get charged. And if I remember correctly, they kind of punted on sentencing. Right. And if you look at that guy, Eddie Gallagher, the guy that Trump pardoned, um, or rather, I don't think Trump pardoned him. He may have gotten, he he may have been acquitted because his guys went on the stand to testify against him. And then when they testified, they completely changed their story and basically fucked the prosecution. But not only Jeez. not only was he just like he was so insane in Afghanistan and in Syria, you know, shooting people for no reason to the point where like his own guys disabled the sights of his sniper rifle. Cause they didn't want him to be accurate. Cause he was killing people randomly. And in one case in Iraq, he, um, <laughs> he, uh, they, one of his medics was treating a, an ISIS fighter who was wounded, who was probably about 15. Mm-hmm. And while this medic was treating this kid and trying to save his life, Gallagher came up, um, and was like, Oh, I've been meaning to try this out. I made this knife myself and just cut this kid's throat. What the fuck? And, yeah. and the medic was like, what the fuck is your problem? Like, they couldn't believe it, but you know Jeez. now he's like a conservative hero in America. So we're, we're kind of we're we're kind of sidetracked, but that that culture of us versus them, you know, the seals will always be like, oh, well, I'd rather be tried by twelve than carried by six. And my friend who was an intel officer was like, what they actually mean is, I'd rather be tried by twelve than leave any leave any witnesses. Mm. Like they would do. It was it was so arbitrary. They would and they just killed in one instance in my in my uh, my province. They um. They killed people on an op uh, on target, like the guys were armed and were shooting back. But they also killed some people who were nearby. Who, in one case, they wouldn't put their hands up, and the reason they one guy wouldn't put his hands up was he was paralyzed. He had cerebral palsy, Fuck and they man. killed him and the two guys with him. And the guy they killed was probably about fifteen. Jeez. And so, obviously, like how how are the people who live in these villages supposed to be like, oh yeah, it's it's just those are the bad Americans, but the good Americans mm. didn't want that to happen. They meant well, you know. Like, come on, man, like it's all the same like you all wear the same uniform and essentially uh one of the things that had happened right i mean the the mujahideen that had been trained with this hardline islam uh and you know particularly with this kind of this this idea that you know these are during during the soviet invasion that these are the foreign invaders the white foreign invaders and you have to get them out of your country and that is your holy duty essentially and you know when 20 years later you've got americans that are doing essentially the same thing much worse things in fact in in many cases um i mean yeah it's it's this i mean obviously you're going to have the same reaction to that right you know like these are the invaders and it's my duty to kind of get them out of my fucking country <laughs> to, to give you could give you an idea of how lost shit was my battalion commander was pretty pretty he liked afghans and he was really into like partnership stuff with them i think more so than any other officer i ever worked with and he really got along with the the provincial governor and the police then nds guys and so you know he he was really into it and like he liked doing planning with them and like doing joint stuff with them like not just hey we're gonna do this send you know 100 afghan soldiers but more like working with him and um you know the governors in the provinces under the afghan system in the previous government the one that the taliban just uh overthrew the governors were all appointed by the president and the governor appointed all the district subgovernors. So you could vote for Afghan parliament and you could vote for the president, but you, uh, you didn't really have a say in who your local government was. Yeah. It was all imposed from above. Mm-hmm. Well, gover- our governor was a guy named Abdul Qayyim Kadawazi and he, um, he was pretty like very sanguine, very pragmatic. And, and with the seals, my battalion commander made the SEAL team leader for after that op that I told you about where they killed the paralyzed kid. He was like, I'm not going to authorize any of your ops in this in the area that I'm in control of unless you come and talk to the governor with me, which like SEALs never do. But they, they finally agreed uh, and they came along and the governor was really sanguine. He was like, look, you know, you guys have so much more capability than anything the Afghan military has right now. I love what you do. You're so good at your jobs. Like I really respect it, but like you have to understand that I'm always going to have your back. But at a certain point, if you keep being sloppy and you keep killing civilians, the president's going to replace me with somebody who isn't going to have your back and isn't going to let you up because you know, he is getting heat from all the people about all the civilian casualties. So like, 
I want you to keep, this is literally what he said. He's like, I want you to keep doing your job here in Pactica, but I just want you to be more cautious because the more this happens, the less likely it is that you're going to have people in government here who are going to support you. And what do the SEALs do? They came back to my battalion commander two weeks later with a target packet being like, oh yeah, we intercepted the governor's communications. He's talking to the Taliban on the side. We want to take him out. And my battalion commander's like, wait, yeah. are you saying you want to kill my partner in the Afghan government? Like, the guy that I work with, the guy that I'm like, is my my senior Afghan politics guy, like the person who I make all my decisions with here. You want to kill him? And they're like, yeah, he's corrupt. We're going to take him out. And he was just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, do, do, you, do we speak the same fucking language? Like, do you understand this whole thing that we're supposedly like partnering with them to like develop their military and all this shit and provide, <laughs> like, you want to kill the guy who's like my senior partner in the Afghan government? They're like, yeah, yeah, he's a target. And I was just like, yeah, this is this is a fucking. So when I say that, like, you know, I had the crisis of conscience, like with regard to watching that kid die and them just refusing to do anything. But like, this is another angle to it that that there was no military solution for two reasons. Number one, because the Afghan government was so unrepresentative, the Afghan military was so unrepresentative, and it was just basically a big grift machine. You know, like the U.S. was dumping so much money into this country that yeah. you could just, you know, I've heard stories of people being like, oh yeah, in a district the size of like a county in America, we we're supposed to spend $3 million a day in cash. Like, what do you think is going to happen in that situation? So even by 2009, it was so obvious to me there was no military solution. And that after the election in 2009, which I was there for, seeing how obviously they had, uh, you know, they had stuffed ballots for Karzai, mm-hmm. um, I just was like, this is this is fundamentally a failed state, and I don't want to be like, hell yeah, surrender it to the Taliban. But like, there is no if we if we leave tomorrow or if we leave in 20 years, it does not matter. This government is going to collapse. It basically doesn't exist. Yeah. And um, and it's just sex. I remember reading the summary of Obama's statement in 09 about like, hey, we're going to do a troop surge and then we're going to, um, you know, we're going to withdraw combat troops by 2014. Um, and I was just so disheartened at that moment because I was just like, surely someone must know this is a fucking disaster. and that This is not ever going to get better. But I mean, surely um, by sort of like 2011 after bin Laden's capture and like sort of 2011, 2012, by that point, the American establishment is pretty much known what you're saying right you know that this war was pretty much done uh and it was unwinnable and uh and for the next 10 years i mean didn't they just continue it for the sake of the defense contractors and uh but like what what i was saying before like by 2010 i think it had sort of uh it's sort of morphed into this ideological war against islam essentially this really dark and uh brutal well yeah uh, and I, I would say too that um that the uh what happened in iraq post u.s withdrawal um yeah where uh as i understand it, i believe it was still nuri al-maliki basically um as soon as the u.s left imprisoned all of his political rivals mm-hmm. and then the country got more and more destabilized and then when uh isis took over it basically looked like ISIS was going to take Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And I think the the U.S. defense establishment basically, um, yeah, I mean, the combination of what you were saying, defense contractors, you know, maintenance contracts, uh, contracts that were like planned to, to, to last really long, leases on U.S. air bases in, in Afghanistan. There was this notion that, well, actually, we're going to maintain enough of a troop presence so that we can, you know, they can keep making money and that we're going to be like, oh, we're projecting for us. We're developing ANSF capacity, Afghan National Security Forces. Mm-hmm. But um, by the end of the surge in Afghanistan, by 2015, you know, parts of Helmand and, and Kandahar were taken over completely by the Taliban. The Taliban started to expand into the north in places where they hadn't really been as dominant before. Uh, areas that don't have significant Pashtun populations, or at least far less of a Pashtun population than the south. Um, you have ISIS Khorasan province emerges as a splinter group from the Taliban in, in, uh, I think 2014, 2015. Um, basically because they think the Taliban's not hard, hard line enough. You start having these, you know, huge terrorist attacks, you know, ISIS KP killing Hazaras, attacking uh, a maternity ward in one place. Um, just you like, it's getting more and more violent and Afghan security forces are dying and mass like, 10,000-ish per year. It's really, right. really bad. Yeah. 
you know, there were 2,500, 2,450 or so American troops died in Afghanistan in, you know, almost 20 years of war. Like, you know, we had seven in my battalion. Three mm. of them were guys I knew really well. Mm. Like, it sucked. But, like, let me be honest with you. That is, that was a couple, that entirety death cult toll for American troops is like two or three decently not so bad months for Afghan security forces in a country yeah. with a far smaller population than America. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think I talked about this earlier. Maybe I said this to you. Um, but I keep coming back to uh, the guy that I interviewed on Hellaway, Arish Azizada, saying the status quo was sustainable according to, you know, American defense officials. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and his, his point was sustainable to whom? 10,000 yeah. Afghans were dying each year. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that sustainable unless their lives don't matter? Mm-hmm. And so I think the fact that the U.S. didn't factor in the possibility that the government could just collapse overnight is, to me them not wanting to and this is probably the military and you know senior echelons of um the you know like the biden administration and the joint chiefs of staff they didn't want to consider the worst case scenario because considering the worst case scenario would imply uh that all of the stuff that had been said was false and that it really was that bad in a way that we had been trying to lie to ourselves and lie to the world about mm-hmm. and in a way us lying to ourselves and being completely blindsided by the truth when the Taliban take over Kabul, you know, two weeks after the U.S. says they estimate the government could last, you know, 90 to 180 days. It's just yeah. like the perfect encapsulation of the war in a way. Like we did one thing and claimed to be doing another thing and refused to believe the consequences of what were actually happening, what was of what we were actually doing. And, uh, and finally in the end, um, yeah, this, this, this catastrophe takes place and, um, you know, they, they do the largest airlift in history, but we've still left lots and lots of people behind who are, if the Taliban choose to be, uh, vindictive are going to be absolutely targeted. Mm-hmm. The national director of security, their intelligence agency has been, you know, captured all of their files on people are in Taliban possession. Uh, the U.S. biometrics is probably less usable to the Taliban than people think, but it's still bad. It still could be used. It's just, mm-hmm. it's it's um, it's it's pretty grim. But it's also the data is is probably not as useful as people think because you know everything from dead bodies to like little kids who need medical attention were entered into uh, that biometrics database. So there's not really, in my in my opinion, it's not it, it, that's not as as grave a threat as the Taliban have the NDS files, all their intel. Mm-hmm. And um, if they decide that they want to punish people for collaborating, if you want to call it collaborating, I'm, I'm, I'm very wary of that term because I mean like, sure. if you talk to Afghans, that's not how most of the Afghans that I, that I you know, encounter see it. It's more like people in desperate circumstances. And yeah, of course. You know, there yeah. was at least some desire, there was a desire to make it a functional state in the beginning, but it was just, it became you know more and more kleptocratic and corrupted and i mean it's it's, it's a matter of survival for i mean like that's probably one of the few ways that like a lot of people could survive in a situation like that right yeah i mean people people talk about it and call them and use use kind of doctrinaire terms and call these people collaborators and i'm just like listen man like yeah, yeah. live in a, li, 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 live in a country where one in five women dies in childbirth and your family on average will probably earn about a thousand dollars a year mm. with a passport with a passport you can't afford and airlines you can't afford to get out of the country where only about 26 countries will even let you in mm. And Jeez. tell me, tell me what you think your options actually are. Like to me, the thing I would say is that I don't really care if people, like I, I, I don't really. I think the a lot of the the hagiographies and sort of the the platitudes about the, the the sacrifice of the military. Like we all chose that job, we volunteered. Like don't don't make make us the center of attention, please. That's that's really really it's vulgar to do that. Mm. Although there is a there is a strong exploitative aspect about the U.S. military, yeah, and the British military too. About, I mean, the, when you read about how they're recruited in like malls and stuff sure, or like or that. in Britain when they recruit sixteen-year-olds, like yeah, it's it's yeah, it's yeah. grim. But I think the thing I would say about it is more, if I had a a big takeaway from this, it's that I am mortified by the way people talk about and conceive of like what Afghans really reasonably can do given the circumstances. Yeah. And yeah. I just hope that people bear that if this, you know, 
episode resonates with you in any way, just bear that in mind that like, these are some of the poorest and most victimized people on the planet. Like your solidarity and empathy should go to them. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it sucks that our, you know, guys like me, our friends died, but like, like I said, we were adults. We made an adult decision to join. We were volunteers. We knew what we we're getting into, but like people in that country have no way out. They have no choice. Yeah. And it's so yeah. nauseating and infuriating to see how contemptuously people talk about them. Talk about their people like, like Biden saying, Oh, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't fight for themselves. It's exactly. Like, like I said before, do the math. You, Trans apply the the difference in population size. They lost the equivalent of America losing nearly six hundred thousand troops in combat, like dying. Like, don't tell me they didn't fucking fight. Like they were dying. Like that attack that happened the other day when they detonated the suicide bomb. They killed thirteen American troops. Aside from a helicopter shoot down in twenty eleven, that is the deadliest attack on American troops in the entire war. That would not make headlines if it was Afghan troops. It just wouldn't. That happened once a week. I always think it's it's helpful to to view it from a from a purely existential uh, viewpoint. You know, like try and think through the stages of if I were an Afghan, what would I yeah, do? Yeah, what would I do? You're from a young child through to an adult. Just uh, take it through the different stages of agency and and find out where you end up. It's uh, it's a useful little tool, I think. Yeah. I'm just thinking and now I, I... as well about like the the fighters who've in the Taliban, who've actually, like, taken control of the country now, many of them would have been born after the American invasion. Oh, it's an incredibly young country. I mean, the average age is, is like, 18 or 20 or something like that. I mean, when we were there, a lot of the people who they were getting to volunteer, you know, the sort of foot soldiers of the Taliban, like the the kids going out to, you know, take pot shots or shoot mortars or bury IEDs, they were teenagers. They were, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. So in 2009, they were, they were too young to really remember, uh, like maybe they were old enough to, to remember nine 11, but not, you know, as little kids, basically younger than I you mean, guys. I mean, and then now, if you think about it, like they, they would have been, chances are really good. A lot of these fighters were born after nine 11. Exactly. This is what I was saying at the beginning, you know, working with people who I, like I said, are born after nine 11, just thinking and, and yeah, like, yeah, there'll be 18, 19 year old Taliban fighters. Of course there will be. Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just incredible because like for, for these kids, I mean, the occupation is their entire life at that point, you know, and that's the yeah. only, that's the only reality that they actually know. It's a very bleak scenario, not knowing what sovereignty feels like. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talk about bringing them democracy and all of that mm. shit, but it, to not even have the prospect of anyone who represents you comes from the sort of body, body politic you, uh, yeah. that you, you stem from having any chance of actually governing <laughs> their own people is, is, is really bleak state of affairs, isn't it? And, and to have all of the, the worst war criminals of the Mujahideen era enshrined in the government, people like Abdul Rashid yeah. Dostum or Gulbuddin Hekmatyar given ceremonial positions in the government, to have basically every interaction with your government be, in most cases, a, a, a policeman who, who probably speaks a language you don't speak, mm-hmm. shaking you down for money yeah. and searching your family members. If you have complaints, bring them to the government and basically being told to go fuck yourself mm-hmm. or hit up for a bribe. I can recall a story I'll tell you really briefly because I know we're going long. I had a guy come to me because our battalion commander asked if uh, someone could find him, a truck driver, someone with a tow truck who could haul away these burned out um, uh, Hino trucks. Hino is a brand of truck, but like the, there's a kind of a pejorative term. People call them jingle trucks, but like cause they decorate the vehicles in, in Afghanistan, Pakistan with like lots of paintings Bells and murals and things and, you like that. Yeah. But um, these were, these were Hino trucks that had been hit by uh, the, the convoy had been attacked and the, the drivers had been run off and then they burned the trucks. And so my battalion commander was like, you know, uh, it's kind of an eyesore and it definitely reminds people they're in a war zone. So maybe we could get these truck, you know, hulks removed. So, you know, they paid a guy and they gave, they brought out some people to do security and he hauled them, put them all up on a uh, flatbeds and took them back to Sharana, the cap, the capital of Paktika. Well, as soon as he got them there, the whole deal was, Hey, if you do this, we'll pay you and you can keep the trucks for parts. Mm-hmm. So he did that. Well, the owner of the truck company who had abandoned them in the first place was like, no, those are my trucks. And the guy was like, yeah, well, I talked to the Americans and they, they said, I can keep them. He's like, well, they're my trucks. The guy's like, well, talk to this guy, you know, Colonel mm-hmm. Baker, the battalion commander. Like he, he, he gave me this job. They sent American troops out. So this guy, the owner, 
called his friend who was in the NDS, mm-hmm. who then sent out NDS soldiers in American uniforms to beat the fuck out of this guy and tell him to give him the trucks back. And so he was really confused because they were dressed like Americans. He came to us and I was like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck's going on, dude. But like, we'll go talk to the head of the NDS from the province. Mm -hmm. So I went in with my interpreter and with this guy and I explained to this guy, the the colonel or general or whoever it was, what was happening. And he was like, yeah, this this sounds like a, a misunderstanding. You know, like, I'm really sorry to hear that. He's like, well, let me, let me, you know, we can see what we can do here because like, I feel like this, this sounds really bad. Everything about it sounds like a really big concern. And I was like, you know, and all of a sudden I got a phone call uh, from someone I need to take it. So I told him like, Hey, I'm just gonna step out of the room. I'll be right back. So I came back, you know, after taking this phone call and my interpreter, I didn't really notice any difference, but then they were like, all right, we'll talk about this later. You know, thanks for bringing this to my attention. And we left. My interpreter was like, do you know what happened when you left? And I was like, what? He's like, as soon as you left, he looked at that guy. He said, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, who the fuck do you think you are talking to me like this? You want to come and talk to the Americans behind my back and come here and try to fucking put me on the spot? Like, if you ever talk to me ever again, I will fucking kill you myself. And my interpreter was so shaken by this because he was Hazara too and these, none of these people were Hazara and he was just really weirded out by it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm like, that's, that's your government. That's the government we're fucking installing in this country yeah. that we're propping up. Like, that's how the government treats its citizens. Yeah. And... Christ. You know, what do you, how can you look at people and be like, no, for, so I can feel good about myself. You have to suffer that for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Like how fucked up is that? So none of, none of, none of the collapse surprises me. The idea of, you know, Af- Afghanistan constantly being in, in conflict in civil war. And, and now that looks to be continuing with, um, with the fight back, the Mujahideen fight back against the Taliban, kind of reminiscent of the, of the the nineties, uh, and and you've got the Washington Post publishing uh, an opinion piece uh, entitled "The Mujahideen Resistance to the Taliban Begins Now, But We Need Help," <laughs> written by Ahmed Massoud, son of Ahmed Shah Massoud, previously mentioned, very legendary commander of the uh, Mujahideen um, in, in Panjshir district. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just, from the sounds of it, I think they, in Panjshir, they defeated the Taliban about a day ago. And I think that's like the one province that the Taliban still haven't taken. But, you know, it just looks to be, I mean, even if there is relative calm in Kabul for well but not not even relative calm in Kabul what am I talking about there was a there was a bombing the other day so um yeah. so so this is the thing I mean it's uh it's it's really difficult to see an end in sight for something like this and sort of as bleak as that seems or sounds but yeah I mean that's just yeah it's just I, it's just horribly I, I, depressing I, somehow yeah I don't know what's going to come of this I mean you have a situation with Afghanistan's been hit really bad with drought and flooding in different places. Mm-hmm. It's been hit really bad with COVID. Uh, a lot of people are food insecure. The economy is reliant on cash transactions, cash um, deposits or, or, or aid from the West. Um, you know, the banks have been closed since the Taliban took over. Um, they've just reopened, but getting money into the country is very challenging. Um, the, the The whole system there is like the entire government and sort of civil service order of things is going to collapse if they don't get funds and get things on track fast. Um, you've got an incredibly young population. You've got, yeah. uh, you know, a huge problem with drug abuse. Yeah. A lot of people addict- addicted to heroin or opium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Taliban say they want to cut down opium production and they did do this when they were in charge, but like they also make a lot of money off of it. It's the, uh, it's, so uh, I think it was up, a report this year said it was up to like 60% of their revenue is, is, is opium. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard conflicting stuff. I've heard people say that it's 60% of their revenue or thereabouts. I've also heard people say that they actually make a lot more money charging people transit fees for import export of goods and okay. charging sales tax. Okay. And that it's actually more like 10%. Okay. But what I do know is that like, the Taliban are different now than they were in the sense that like they were really hard line about opium mm-hmm. and they say they're going to be again, but we don't know. They were really hard line about a lot of things. And now it's like, you know, they mm-hmm. go around taking selfies. There's, there's that guy, Milan Hoste, <laughs> who's like a, a like a sh- 
Taliban shit poster who posts like Wojak Taliban <laughs> memes and stuff. It's the strangest like, shit. This is, oh my god, he's so it's, it's so, so insane. Bizarre. Yeah, it's so like like we my friends and I, some of whom are, are veterans, are just sort of like this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life when we encounter it. But um I think the situation is that they they're in charge. Yeah. They control the country. Yeah. But I think a lot of people are very um convinced or rather they they fall victim to this idea that they are this like super regimented hardline organization and not just kind of like a movement of a lot of affiliated groups Mm -hmm. you know the haqqani network is part of the taliban now like they you know sirajuddin haqqani is part of the governing council or the supreme council but Haqqani Network was its own sort of organization. They weren't necessarily tied in with the Quetta Shura Taliban before. Um, you have people like Ismail Han joining the the Taliban, more or less under duress, but he did join them. Mm. And he was a really famous Mujahideen fighter in the yeah. 80s. Um, you know, people like Dostum fled the country. Hekmat Yar is at least involved with the Taliban. Um, you know, the Taliban are in charge of places in the north where they were never really able to capture in the 90s. Um, I don't think Panjshir is going to turn into a civil war. I think that I think that they, there's going to be mediation, and they're eventually going to surrender. Um, I think that uh, the thing is, they have so many problems now; they have to be in charge of, and who knows what's going to happen. What I really worry about, though, is that people are going to in the West are going to get really in their feelings about like, oh, it's just like Saigon in 1975, and then they're just going to do everything they can to forget about it without thinking about the people who are suffering the most from this right now. Yeah. And so to me, I think, um, I mean, if the Taliban turn around and they start cracking down on people and, and, and massacring people and it just becomes this nightmare, like I don't really know what we can expect, you know, our, let's call it what they are, sort of center right bourgeois liberal politicians to do. Yeah. Like they're going to isolate it, which is going to be a human humanitarian disaster and it's going to foster a, a, yeah. a fuckload of people being forced to leave their homes. And that brings with it, you know, in the purest sort of like cynical real politics sense, that's going to be, uh, that's going to cause one of two things to happen. Either a rerun of 2015, which, and all the ascendant right wing bullshit in America or like an, infor- or not America, in Europe or yeah. a really yeah. brutal, awful border regime in places like Turkey and, you know, Greece, the edge of the yeah. EU and stuff like that. I, th- I think that the latter is likely. If you look at what's happening in, yeah, like Greece, uh, Bulgaria, obviously that Hungary, the the way that they're gearing up to deal with a, another surge yeah. of migrants coming from Afghanistan, the way they're bolstering the the border security is is very yeah. bleak. It's uh, it's definitely gearing up for something. And I think that uh, yeah, and I mean Western leaders uh, seem to have been pretty open about the fact that they're not going to be particularly accommodating to not at all. I mean, they, yeah, exactly. To, to I mean, and I, 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 I point so. this out that for all the talk of we can only accommodate so many people at once, the target that the yeah. UK government set for itself was 20,000 Afghan refugees. 20,000, which, which is, I mean, unbe- unbelievable. That's well, just, and it's not just 20,000, it's 20,000 over the course yeah. of five years. Whereas in the last My year, <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of this, but they created a special visa for people to migrate from Hong Kong. It only costs 250 pounds for a five-year yeah. visa. And in the last year alone, they've had yeah, 34,000 yeah. people migrate and they expect about half a million are going to migrate that way so we can we can take half a million people just to own xi jinping yeah, yeah, but yeah. we can't take we can't take the people from the country we occupy for two yes. fucking days the people in britain's case the people from the country that, that we've had a an enormous fraught violent history with over the last two centuries and we're saying oh no we can exactly. only take we our, our, our you know ooh, my small bean country can only take four thousand afghans at a time you're just too powerful but we are going to take yeah we're going to let you know and, and i say let like I understand why Hong Kong citizens would want to come to the United Kingdom, but I think the reason I bring them up is not to point a finger at them and make, you know, try to tell people to, to, to cast aspersions at Hong Kongers, but more to say, if Britain's government and America's government and Western governments want to solve this, the problem or ameliorate suffering, they can do it overnight. Britain could snap yeah. its fingers and st- and cancel all deportation proceedings for Afghan asylum seekers and grant them all ILR overnight Absolutely. if they wanted to. They've deported yeah. more people back Definitely. to Afghanistan since 2004 than any other country in Europe, almost double the number of what Switzerland has done 
uh, which is like Britain's deported 15,000 people back. There are, as I, I'm aware, about 3,000 people pending either asylum or deportation back to Afghanistan. Like they could ameliorate that suffering immediately if they wanted to. And I think the, the fact of it is the reason why you have this massive humanity at the airport trying to get out up until yesterday, the reason why it was because both in America and in Britain, for all of the uh, the sort of hand-wringing about, oh, we have to protect our allies and our partners, they don't actually want those people to come over. And it was never about the Afghan people. I mean, it was about a show of, uh, it was about a show of Western military power. It was uh, about exacting revenge. It was about uh, accessing geopolitical strategic point in a place like Afghanistan. Yeah, the, the, the right and, wing, the yeah. right wing, the right wing viewpoint yeah. was we need revenge for nine eleven, even if they had nothing to do with it. We yeah. just need to punish someone. Mm-hmm. And the and the sort of liberal viewpoint was more was effectively like, well, I I read the Kite Runner and I want to fix this country. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like yeah. exactly. Christ, I remember reading that. At school. <laughs> the one thing that I would say is that there's an aspect of like kind of deep lore Afghan history and some of the cultural stuff that obviously I'm not really qualified to talk about because I mean like. I I just I'm not Afghan, but I I do hope. What I do hope is that a couple of things. If people are listening, like if you have fans who you know would like to reach out, who who are Afghan, who would, would talk about the stuff, I feel like it would be an, a, an interesting counterpoint to talk about that from the perspective because you've got me, random you know American guy. Um, I'd love to hear that perspective. But another thing too, I'd say for people listening is um, is that there are things you can do to help people. Um, everything from I mean, it's a very fruitless endeavor to call your elected representatives because as I've learned in the last week, they do not fucking answer the phone. But um, there are a lot of great organizations throughout the US and UK that are doing work locally to help get people on their feet when they arrive in this country and also to help with legal aid to get people in. Um, and if you're interested, my my ad on Twitter is at In These Deserts and my DMs are open. If you live in London or you live in the UK, uh, please reach out to me because I can point you in the direction of places uh, that I have donated to and fundraised for who are helping um, asylum seekers, migrants and people who are already in this country, but, you know, are in in, in need. Um, and also in the US, I can point you to some organizations, both like nationally and locally um, and people that are doing resettlement work. So I do feel like the thing is, is that if there was one big takeaway, it's that these are people who have suffered because of the delusions of people who have never set foot in their country. It's their country and they've had to suffer because people are like, well, like Hillary Clinton didn't want to negotiate a withdrawal from Afghanistan because she wanted to run for president. And she's like, well, I'm supposed to be strong on women's rights. And if the Taliban take over, then I won't be, that'll be a weak spot. It's like, so you prolong a war that's killing tens of thousands of people, like not even singling her out. I'm just saying that like it became the sort of the, 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 the canvas for a lot of people's deranged dreams about nation building. And those people have suffered immensely to a degree that is very hard to understand if you are, not from there or from a place like that. And I just hope that, yeah. that like if this episode leaves you or these episodes, if we break it up, leaves you, leave you with any <laughs> lasting impression. It's that like these people absolutely deserve your empathy. And like, I've never been to a country more hospitable and welcoming than Afghanistan. It made such a profound impression mm-hmm. on me and those people, they mm-hmm. deserve better. And like the only way that's going to happen is if, if we, remember that and help those people because like it's just such a bad fucking situation um yeah and uh, i guess that's all i've got absolutely and i um if you want to send me the links of some of those organizations as well i'll link them in the in the show notes and we'll we'll promote them on twitter as well obviously um but yeah honestly this has been really really great i can't thank you enough for for coming on thanks so much thank you for having me on all, all, all of that it's um yeah really quite invaluable input honestly um god yeah uh, it's been it's been yeah really really great stuff um lot to consider and uh yeah as as, as always as well um arjan at arjanistan on twitter uh i'm rory at rory woods r-u-a-i-r-i woods on twitter yeah and uh we're at leftover pod uh, uh if you want to give us a follow uh, we're on patreon as well patreon.com forward slash leftover pod huge thanks to all of our supporters as always and a big thanks if you're able to help as well um yeah and uh massive thanks B- big shout out to sarah as well obviously especially 
in light of this episode and yeah um everything always big love as always and uh yeah big shout out to, to cardio for the intro music and to all of you for listening and we'll catch you guys next time cheers you know me, I said.